Chapter Nineteen, The Great Peak of Cameroons continued. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa by Mary H. Kingsley, Chapter Nineteen, The Great Peak of Cameroons continued. Setting forth how the voyager for a second time reaches the southeast crater, with some account of the pleasures incidental to camping out in the said crater. September 24th. Lovely morning. The gray-white mist in the forest makes it like a dream of fairyland, each moss-green tree stem heavily gemmed with dewdrops. At 5.30 I stir the boys, for Sasu, the sergeant, says he must go back to his military duties. The men think we are all going back with him, as he is our only guide. But I send three of them down with orders to go back to Victoria, two being of the original set I started with. They are surprised and disgusted at being sent home, but they have got hot foot and something wrong in the usual seat of African internal disturbances, their tummocks, and I am not thinking of starting a sanatorium for abdominally afflicted Africans in that crater plain above. Black boys, the other boy returned. I do not want another of his attacks. They go, and this leaves me in the forest camp with Kefala, Xenia, and Cook, and we start expecting the water sent for by Monrovia boy yesterday forenoon. There are an abominable lot of bees about. They do not give one a moment's peace, getting beneath the waterproof sheets over the bed. The ground, bestrewn with leaves and dried wood, is a mass of large flies, rather like our common house-fly, but both butterflies and beetles seem scarce, and I confess I do not feel up to hunting much after yesterday's work, and deem it advisable to rest. My face, and particularly my lips, are a misery to me, having been blistered all over by yesterday's sun, and last night I inadvertently whipped the skin all off one cheek with a blanket, and it keeps on bleeding, and horror of horrors, there is no tea until that water comes. I wish I had got the mountaineering spirit, for then I could say, I'll never come to this sort of place again, for you can get all you want in the Alps. I have been told this by my mountaineering friends. I have never been there, and that you can go and do all sorts of stupendous things all day, and come back in the evening to table d'hôte at an hotel. But I have not got the mountaineering spirit. I suppose I shall come fooling into some such place as this, as soon as I get the next chance." About eight-thirty to our delight, the gallant Monrovia boy comes through the bush with a demijohn of water, and I get my tea, and give the men the only half-pound of rice I have and tin of meat, and they eat, become merry, and chat over their absent companions in a scornful, scandalous way. Who cares for hotels now? When one is in a delightful place like this, one must work. So off I go to the north into the forest, after giving the rest of the demijohn of water, into the Monrovia boy's charge with strict orders it is not to be opened till my return. Quantities of beetles. A little after two o'clock I returned to camp, after having wandered about in the forest and found three very deep holes, down which I heaved rocks, and in no case heard a splash. In one I did not hear the rocks strike, owing to the great depth. I hate holes, and especially do I hate these African ones, for I am frequently falling more or less into them, and they will be my end. 
The other demijohns of water have not arrived yet, and we are getting anxious again because the men's food has not come up, and they have been so exceedingly thirsty that they have drunk most of the water, not, however, since it has been in Monrovia's charge, but at 3.15 another boy comes through the bush with another demijohn of water. We receive him gladly and ask him about the chop. He knows nothing about it. At 3.45 another boy comes through the bush with another demijohn of water. We receive him kindly. He does not know anything about the chop. At 4.10 another boy comes through the bush with another demijohn of water, and knowing nothing about the chop we are civil to him, and that's all. A terrific tornado which has been lurking growling about then sits down in the forest and bursts, wrapping us up in a lively kind of fog with its thunder, lightning, and rain. It was impossible to hear or make oneself heard at the distance of even a few paces, because of the shrill squeal of the wind, the roar of the thunder, and the rush of the rain on the trees around us. It was not like having a storm burst over you in the least. You felt you were in the middle of its engine-room when it had broken down badly. After half an hour or so, the thunder seemed to lift itself off the ground, and the lightning came in sheets, instead of in great forks that flew like flights of spears among the forest trees. The thunder, however, had not settled things amicably with the mountain. It roared its rage at Mungo, and Mungo answered back, quivering with a rage as great under our feet. One feels here as if one were constantly dropping, unasked, and unregarded among the painful and violent discussions between the elemental powers of the universe. Mungo growls and swears in thunder at the sky, and sulks in white mist all the morning, and then the sky answers back, hurling down lightnings and rivers of water, with total disregard of Mungo's visitors. The way the water rushes down from the mountain wall, through the watercourses in the jungle just above, and then at the edge of the forest spreads out into a sheet of water, that is an inch deep and that flies on past us in miniature cascades, trying the while to put out our fire and so on is quite interesting. I exhausted my vocabulary on those boys yesterday. As soon as we saw what we were in for, we had thrown dry wood on the fire, and it blazed just as the rain came down, so with our assistance it fought a good fight with its fellow elements, spitting and hissing like a wild cat. We could have managed the water fairly well, but the wind came, very nearly putting an end to it by carrying away its protective bow-house, which settled on Professor Kefala, who burst out in a lecture on the foolishness of mountaineering and the quantity of devils in this region. Just in the midst of these joys, another boy came through the bush with another demijohn of water. We did not receive him even civilly. I burst out laughing, and the boys went off in a roar, and we shouted at him, "'Where them chop?' He lived for come, said the boy, and we then gave him a hearty welcome and a tot of rum. And an hour afterwards two more boys appear, one carrying a sack of rice and beef for the men, and the other a box for me from Herr Leibert, containing a luxurious supply of biscuits, candles, tinned meats, and a bottle of wine and one of beer. We are now all happy, though exceeding damp, and the boys sit round the fire with their big iron pot full of beef and rice, busy cooking while they talk. Wonderful accounts of our prodigies of valor are here given by Xenia, and terrible accounts of what they have lived through from the others, and the men who have brought up the demijohns and the chop recount the last news from Buea. James's wife has run away again. I have taken possession of two demijohns of water and the rum demijohn, arranging them round the head of my bed. 
The worst of it is those tiresome bees, as soon as the rain is over, come in hundreds after the room and frighten me continually. The worthless wretches get intoxicated on what they can suck from round the cork, and then they stagger about on the ground, buzzing malevolently. When the boys have had the chop in a good smoke, we turn to and make up the loads for tomorrow's start up the mountain, and then after more hot tea, I turn in on my camp bed, listening to the soft sweet murmur of the trees, and the pleasant laughing chatter of the men. September 25th. Rolled off the bed twice last night into the bush. The rain has washed the ground away from under its off legs, so that it tilts, and there were quantities of large longicorn beetles about during the night, the sort with spiny backs, they kept on getting themselves hitched onto my blankets, and when I wanted civilly to remove them they made a horrid freezing noise and showed fight, cocking their horns in a defiant way. I wake, finally, about five a.m., soaked through to the skin. The waterproof sheet has had a label sewn to it, so it is not waterproof, and it has been raining softly but amply for hours. About seven we are off again, with Xenia, headman, cook, Monrovia boy, and a laborer from Buea, the water-carriers, having gone home after having had their morning chop. We make for the face of the wall by a route to the left of that I took on Monday, and when we are clambering up it some six hundred feet above the hillocks, swish comes a terrific rainstorm at us, accompanied by a squealing bitter-cold wind. We can hear the roar of the rain on the forest below, and hoping to get above it we keep on, hoping, however, is vain. The dense mist that comes with it prevents our seeing more than two yards in front, and we get too far to the left. I am behind the band today, severely bringing up the rear, and about one o'clock I hear shouts from the vanguard, and when I get up to them I find them sitting on the edge of one of the clefts or scars in the mountain face. I do not know how these quarry-like chasms have been formed. They both look alike from below. The mountain wall comes down vertically into them, and the bottom of this one slopes forward, so that if we had had the misfortune when a little lower down to have gone a little further to the left, we should have got on to the bottom of it, and should have found ourselves walled in on three sides, and had to retrace our steps. As it is, we have just struck its right-hand edge, and fortunately the mist, thick as it is, has not been sufficiently thick to lead the men to walk over it, for had they done so they would have got killed, as the cliff arches in under so that we look straight into the bottom of the scar, some two hundred or three hundred feet below, when there is a split in the mist. The sides and bottom are made of, and strewn with, white moss-grown masses of volcanic cinder rock, and sparsely shrubbed with gnarled trees which have evidently been under fire. One of my boys tells me from the burning of this face of the mountain by the major from Calabar during the previous dry season. We keep on up a steep grass-covered slope and finally reach the top of the wall. The immense old crater floor before us is today the site of a seething storm, and the peak itself quite invisible. My boys are quite demoralized by the cold. I find most of them have sold the blankets I gave them out at Buana, and those who have not sold them have left them behind at Buea, from laziness perhaps, but more possibly from a confidence in their powers to prevent us getting so far. I believe if I had collapsed too, the cold tempted me to do so as nothing else can, they would have lain down and died in the cold, sleety rain. I sight a clump of gnarled, sparsely foliaged trees bedraped heavily with lichen, 
growing in a hollow among the rocks. Thither I urge the men for shelter, and they go like storm-bewildered sheep. My bones are shaking in my skin, and my teeth in my head, for after the experience I had had of the heat here on Monday, I dared not clothe myself heavily. The men stand helpless under the trees, and I hastily take the load of blankets her library lent us off a boy's back, and undo it, throwing one blanket around each man, and opening my umbrella and spreading it over the other blankets. Then I give them a tot of rum apiece, as they sit huddled in their blankets, and tear up a lot of the brittle rotten wood from the trees and shrubs, getting horrid thorns into my hands the while, and set to work getting a fire with it, and the driest of the moss from beneath the rocks." By the aid of it and Xenia, who soon revived, and a carefully scraped-up candle and a box of matches, the fire soon blazes, Xenia holding a blanket to shelter it, while I, with a cutlass, chop stakes to fix the blankets on, so as to make a fire tent. The other boys now revive, and I hustle them about to make more fires. No easy work in the drenching rain, but work that has got to be done. We soon get the three well alight, and then I clutch a blanket, a ringing wet blanket, but a comfort, and wrapping myself round in it, issue orders for wood to be gathered and stored round each fire to dry, and then stand over cook while he makes the men's already cooked chop hot over our first fire, when this is done getting him to make me tea, or as it more truly should be called, soup, for it contains bits of rice and beef, and the general taste of the affair is wood smoke. Kefala, by this time, is in lecturing form again, so my mind is relieved about him, although he says, "'Oh, ma, it be cold, cold too much. Too much cold kill we black man. All same for one as too much sun kill you white man. Oh, ma!' etc. I tell him they have only got themselves to blame. If they had come up with me on Monday, we should have been hot enough and missed the storm of rain.' When the boys have had their chop and are curling themselves up comfortably round their now-blazing fires, Xenia must needs start a theory that there is a better place than this to camp in. He saw it when he was with an unsuccessful expedition that got as far as this. Kefala is fool enough to go off with him to find this place, but they soon return, chilled through again, and unsuccessful in their quest. I gather that they have been to find caves. I wish they had found caves for I am not thinking of taking out a patent for our present campsite. The bitter wind and swishing rain keep on. We are to a certain extent sheltered from the former, but the latter is of that insinuating sort that nothing but a granite wall would keep off. Just at sundown, however, as is usual in this country, the rain ceases for a while, and I take this opportunity to get out my seaman's jersey. When I have fought my way into it, I turn to survey our position, and find I have been carrying on my battle on the brink of an abysmal hole, whose mouth is concealed among the rocks and scraggly shrubs just above our camp. I heave rocks down it, as we in Fanland would offer rocks to an omwiri, and hear them go nickety-knock like a pebble in Carisbrook well. I think I detect a far-away splash, but it was an awesome way down. This mountain seems set with these man-traps, and some day some gentleman's nigger will get killed down one. The mist has now cleared away from the peak, but lies all over the lower world, and I take bearings of the three highest cones or peaks carefully. Then I go away over the rocky ground southwards, and as I stand looking round, the mist sea below is cleft in twain for a few minutes by some fierce down-drought of wind from the peak, and I got a strange clear sudden view right down to Ambas Bay. It is just like looking down from one world into another. 
I think how Odin hung and looked down into Nafelheim, and then of how hot, how deliciously hot it was away down there, and then the mist closes over it. I shiver and go back to camp, for night is coming on, and I know my men will require intellectual support in the matter of procuring firewood. The men are now quite happy. Over each fire they have made a tent with four sticks with a blanket on, a blanket that is too wet to burn, though I have to make them brace the blankets to windward for fear of their scorching. The wind from the shrubs here is of an aromatic and a resinous nature, which sounds nice, but it isn't, for the volumes of smoke it gives off when burning are suffocating, and the boys who sit almost on the fire are every few moments scrambling to their feet and going apart to cough out smoke, like so many novices in training for the profession of fire-eaters. However, they soon find that if they roll themselves in their blankets and lie on the ground to windward, they escape most of the smoke. They have divided up into three parties, Kefala and Xenia, who have struck up a great friendship, take the lower, the most exposed fire. Headman, Cook, and Monrovia boy have the upper fire, and the laborer has the middle one, he being an outcast for medical reasons. They are all steaming away and smoking comfortably. I form the noble resolution to keep awake, and rouse up any gentleman who may catch on fire during the night and see two wood being put on the fire, so elaborately settle myself on my wooden chop-box, wherein I have got all the lucifers which are not in the soap-box. Owing to there not being a piece of ground the size of a sixpenny piece level in this place, the arrangement of my box-camp takes time, but at last it is done to my complete satisfaction close to a tree-trunk, and I think, as I wrap myself up in my two wet blankets, and lean against my tree, what a good thing it is to know how to make oneself comfortable in a place like this. The tree-stem is perfection, just the right angle to be restful to one's back, and one can rely all the time on nature hereabouts, not to let one get thoroughly effete from luxurious comfort. So I lazily watch and listen to Xenia and Kefala, at their fire hard by. They begin talking to each other on their different tribal societies. Kefala is a Ve, Xenia a Liberian, so in the interests of science I give them two heads of tobacco to stimulate their conversation. They receive them with tragic grief, having no pipe, so in the interests of science I undo my blankets and give them two out of my portmanteau, then do myself up again and pretend to be asleep. I am rewarded by getting some interesting details, and form the opinion that both these worthies, in their pursuit of their particular jujus, have come into contact with white prejudices, and are now fugitives from religious persecution. I also observe they have both their own ideas of happiness. Kefala holds it lies in a warm shirt, Xenia that it abides in warm trousers, and every half-hour the former takes his shirt off, and holds it in the fire-smoke, and then puts it hastily on and Xenia, who is the one and only trouser-wearer in our band, spends fifty per cent of the night on one leg struggling to get the other in or out of these garments, when they are either coming off to be warmed or going on after warming. There seem but few insects here. I have only got two moths to-night, one pretty one with white wings, with little red spots on, like an old-fashioned petticoat such as an early Victorian age lady would have worn, the other a sweet thing in silver. Later, i.e., 2.15 a.m. I have been asleep against that abominable vegetable of a tree. It had its trunk covered with a soft cushion of moss, 
and pretended to be a comfort, a right angle to lean against, and a softly padded protection to the spine from wind, and all that sort of thing, whereas, the whole mortal time, it was nothing in this wretched world but a water-pipe, to conduct an extra supply of water down my back. The water has simply streamed down it, and formed a nice little pool in a rocky hollow where I keep my feet, and I am chilled to the innermost bone." so have to scramble up and drag my box to the side of Kefala and Xenia's fire, feeling sure I have contracted a fatal chill this time. I scrape the ashes out of the fire into a heap and put my sodden boots into them, and they hiss merrily, and I resolve not to go to sleep again. 5 a.m. Have been to sleep twice, and have fallen off my box bodily into the fire in my wet blankets, and should for sure have put it out like a bucket of cold water, had not Xenia and Kefala been roused up by the smother I occasioned, and rescued me, or the fire. It is not raining now, but it is bitter cold, and Cook is getting my tea. I give the boys a lot of hot tea, with a big handful of sugar in, and they then get their own food hot. End of chapter 19 Great Peak of Cameroons continued. Read by Kehinde of Bahatrek.com.